I would actually like to begin, though, with something that you only allude to, and it's not really a central part of your book, but I, I would like to hear just a little bit more about the sort of Hindu sensibility and culture in which you grew up and, you know, how much that part of your identity, you think, affected your desire to explore the legacy of the Buddha. Can you just say something about that? Sure. Well, I grew up uh, in what would be nominally called a Hindu family. Mm -hmm. But, you know, because Hinduism is um, such a flexible religion, if it is a religion at all, I mean, it's more a way of life and it includes all kinds of faiths and beliefs and practices. And um, so we certainly, and and I mean me and my siblings, we never actually were under any pressure to conform to any set of ritual or any god, particular god that we wanted to worship or anything. I mean, my parents worshipped a whole range of, uh, or admired a whole range of gods and divinities. So um, I think if anything, if there was anything I sort of particularly picked up from uh, this upbringing of mine, it was perhaps a larger acceptance of just all kinds of things and not not a particular allegiance to any one Mm -hmm. tradition or or some sort of monolithic faith, which perhaps uh, helped me, you know, in my curiosity. I could go into these areas without thinking that I have to be loyal to a particular set of ideas and I have to compare those sets of ideas to what I'm encountering in these other religions. So I could go into, uh, for instance, Buddhism um, with, you know, I suppose slightly clearer mind uh, and a slightly, you know, blanker slate than people coming from, you know, more monolithic traditions like Christianity or Islam. So that way it was, you know, I suppose helpful to be part of this particular tradition. But at the same time, as I say in the book, Buddhism as a living tradition had died out in India many centuries before. And it had become, I mean, the Buddha had become a Hindu god, at least he was considered Mm -hmm. as such. Uh, And even today, I think if you were to ask Hindus in India, most people in India would say that the Buddha was a Hindu god, was an incarnation of Vishnu, just as Krishna and Rama are incarnations of Vishnu. So I, for a very long time, uh, believed this. And I was, you know, of course, surprised to know that actually the Buddha may have been a historical figure and that there was, you know, quite a Hmm. lot of evidence to indicate that he was one. And furthermore, he was very different from various other you know, gods in the Hindu tradition in the sense that he never claimed to be God himself and certainly claimed no divine attributes or didn't offer a theology and so on. So all of that uh, really came as a surprise to me. But then, you know, this discovery sort of happened over several years and it also involved a whole lot of other things. Right. And did you come to a conclusion about why it was that Buddhism really essentially disappeared in India for for many generations, for centuries? Well, there are all kinds of theories trying to explain this, you know, including that uh, the Muslims who invaded India from the sort of 9th, 10th century onwards, uh, they destroyed a lot of monasteries up in, up in North India and in Eastern India. But a lot of people, a lot of scholars would assert that Buddhism was already in decline by the time these sort of Muslims from Turkey and Central Asia and Persia came into India. And it had been in decline because Buddhism really did not sort of create a priestly class such as one that could sort of you know serve as a mediator between sort of ordinary people and I suppose the, the, the gods. Um, it right. did not offer 
you know, a whole set of ceremonies and rituals which people could adopt in their day-to-day life in the way Brahmanism or other aspects of other Hindu traditions did. Mm-hmm. And because of its suspicion of power, of worldly power, Buddhism really couldn't become very close, or Buddhists couldn't become very close to various kings and various emperors that ruled over India over various centuries. So it didn't quite enjoy the kind of royal patronage that people from other religious traditions could enjoy just because there was enough there in the traditions to bring them deeper into the world as opposed to being slightly on the margins of it. And you tell this fascinating story of how Buddhism really in the 19th century was sort of rediscovered and uncovered and not by Indians, but often by British colonizers, by explorers and amateur archaeologists. It is a fascinating story. I mean, it's a remarkable um, achievement in the sense of, you know, just forming this whole tradition which Mm -hmm. had kind of more or less disappeared, certainly from India. I mean, people in China and Japan and and, and a lot of other places were aware. yes. And, and of course, Tibet Mm -hmm. um, and in Nepal. They were aware of the Buddha and had been following a form of Buddhism for many centuries. But India had become largely unaware of this great man who was born, of course, in North India and spent all of his life there. And the West really had uh, very little clue about this personality until um, the late 18th and early early 19th century. So it was a great discovery in many ways, one, you know, one of the great discoveries of the 19th century, yeah. I think. And we're kind of still, you know, seeing it being played out in, in terms of uh, Buddhism's growing popularity in the West, its transmission to the West, it's sort of taking root in places like America mm-hmm. and, and, and Europe. I want to really get into what the Buddha was about and how those ideas are important. But, you know, one thing you do in the book is you you flesh out the Buddha as an historical figure, um, as a human being in the world. And one question I had, and I don't think you answered this, is to me, once I got to know the Buddha in that largest possible context in which you present him, this image that is everywhere of this fat Buddha with the belly you know, mm-hmm. seemed completely inadequate to me as as the mm-hmm. kind of common representation we have. Do you know where that came from? And I mean, how how do you? I think it's it belongs to the Southeast Asian mm-hmm. uh, East Asian traditions of Buddhism. This particular image or representation, uh, I've never seen that within the Indian tradition. And you know, there was also this Indo Greek tradition of representing the Buddha. I think one of the earliest traditions of envisaging the Buddha, which made the Buddha look more like a European or a sort of uh, Greek person. Mm. So, I mean, all these different traditions have their own versions of what the Buddha might have looked like. And I think, you know, the further the tradition travels from its place of birth, the more, you know, distant the legend is Mm -hmm. or the myth is the more sort of various and surprising forms it takes. And the the legend that we know of the Buddha, I think if people know anything of the story of the Buddha, it is it has almost this kind of fairy tale quality. He was a prince and had everything ventured out and saw that there was suffering in the world and renounced the life that he had led, the life of privilege. I mean, when you go back in and tell the story, I mean, there's there's some truth to that, although although really he was part of a kind of clan, as you say, social structures that in his lifetime were disintegrating, right? I mean, wasn't... Mm-hmm. I mean, how would you tell the story of the Buddha's renunciation, that beginning? Would you tell it differently than what you hear passed down in sort of popular culture? I think that like all sort of myths, um, you know, this myth also expresses 
a larger truth. And of course, it, I mean, it's superficially, it seems very kind of simple. You know, the man goes out on a chariot and sees all these different sights and he sort of suddenly arrives at a realization that, you know, the world is full of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, nobody just goes out there and sees this stuff and, you know, suddenly starts thinking about this. Obviously, there have been other events working upon him, other sights, other things he's seen and experienced. So I don't think it's too much of a leap of an imagination to suppose that the Buddha, before he went out, even if he did go out on this chariot and you know, saw all these people, um, ill people or dying people, that he would have thought about these things. I mean, he, he certainly seems to have led a fairly sheltered life, mm-hmm. um, you know, which sort of gives him this peculiar advantage because, you know, what he was actually looking at were pretty obvious sights, but he could see something new in them. Because uh, he wasn't inured to them. He wasn't used exactly. to Exactly. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, work out, you know, just remain obsessed with this insight into suffering and, you know, really work out its implications over the next few years. So in that sense, he was, you know, particularly well-placed to, to notice it and to work upon, you know, the implications of what he discovered. I was a little bit surprised in your account, and this makes perfect sense, but again, it's not part of the image we have of the Buddha, that he spent years as an ascetic and traveling and and learning until he found his way to that moment of enlightenment in Bodhgaya. But in some ways, he, he did go out and he was something of an evangelical figure. I mean, that word is so loaded in our culture. But, you know, he did then declare himself to be the enlightened one and that he was an enlightened sage. And then he went out to make converts, to find people to follow, not really follow him, but follow what he'd learned. I think he was, you know, working in a highly competitive mm-hmm. arena in the sense that there were so many people out there preaching all kind of stuff and talking about... I, I mentioned some of the sort of big um, countercultural figures at the time who were sort of going around and lecturing, discoursing on, on various things, on fate, and a lot of extremely nihilistic thinkers too. I mean, people who said there's absolutely no point in anything at all and you could just go around killing thousands and thousands of people and you would not have to deal with any consequences at all. So there was a lot of this kind of dangerous stuff around too. And I think... In many of his discourses, many of his dialogues, he's constantly referring to some of these ideas and attacking them. So I think he was he was probably was very perturbed, very dismayed by the stuff that was being said by various people. And as I said, I mean, it was such a time of chaos that people could say just about anything and be believed because, you know, ordinary people were so bewildered. They were so confused. They were ready to believe. It's a bit like now. They were just ready to believe anything <laughs> they were told. Right. And I think he felt... It was important to, uh, as it were, offer something. And maybe it was important also to be a bit aggressive or show busy in offering this stuff or to be claiming that, you know, what he was saying was indeed wisdom. Mm. And, uh, of course, looking back at him, you know, from this distance, it does seem that he may have been a bit brusque or he may have tried to convert people, but not, you know, converting in the sort of, uh, in the sense we are familiar with in, in the monolithic religions or the monotheistic religions of the Middle East. Conversion in Buddhism really means nothing at all because you know you have to do the hard work within yourself. Right. And uh, It's not really just joining saying, something. It's Exactly. I mean, what mm-hmm. are you joining? Mm-hmm. There, is, there is nothing to join. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hard work to do, mm-hmm. but uh, really nothing to, nothing to convert to. What surprised you as you started to look at this person, this character, in his time originally? 
What really surprised me, because I mean, like like a lot of people, and, and of course, in the way of the Buddha is represented um, now, it's very easy to detach him from his real historical context. Yeah. But of course, uh, I mean, it seems very obvious to say this, but everyone, whatever, wherever they are, in whatever time in history, whatever they are saying, really, it really all comes out of a particular experience of the world. It comes out of, you know, the sort of events around them, the way in which they respond to those events. And I think the Buddha, in what he was saying, in what he was thinking about, was very much responding to what was happening around him. And of course, he was responding to, you know, kind of tumultuous changes that uh, were very unique, you know, in, in India at that particular moment. And I really began to understand the nature of those changes or what they really meant, both socially and culturally. Say, say some more about that. Yeah, when I sort of began uh, reading Nietzsche, and Nietzsche I'd been reading much before I'd actually started reading in Buddhism. Right. And I kept encountering in Nietzsche various references to the Buddha and to Buddhism. Almost every book of his has uh, several references to, to Buddha and the Buddhism. And Nietzsche has this very original idea about, you know, where the Buddha was coming from. And uh, he, he greatly admired the Buddha, which was, you know, which was quite extraordinary because yes. <laughs> he really didn't admire anyone else. Yeah. Um, and he kind of kept saying, look, uh, the Buddha was in, in, in a sort of historical situation that I find myself in, which is that I'm seeing the end of something and the beginning of something quite extraordinary. And by that he meant that the old sort of world of Europe in which people had lived in these very small tradition-bound societies and everything really was in in those worlds quite sort of self-contained and the search for for meaning, a search for meaning to life was very much satisfied by, you know, the kind of answers that were given to you by the church, by, you know, the political authority around you. And that, of course, began to change once, you know, modernity arrived. Uh, and by modernity, Nietzsche, of course, meant the sort of great scientific political revolutions of his time, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution. And suddenly, you know, man or human beings discovered this enormous power that they had. And suddenly uh, they felt that they really could not believe in the same old gods anymore and you know the secularization of Europe happens around that time when people discover science and people discover the laws of nature and there is with the breakup of these older societies and the creation of these new very very large worlds new states come into being and at the same time there's now the sort of great wars begin to happen great revolutions extremely violent revolutions and Nietzsche is observing all this and, and saying, you know, there's something terrible is now going to happen because suddenly, you know, everything is permitted and God is dead. And God, I mean, people will, of course, still keep believing in God, but the lives are now controlled by other things altogether. The lives are controlled by very, very large impersonal forces of right. big business, empire, you know, completely secular institutions and ideas. Um, and I think when he talked about the Buddha being in a somewhat similar situation, what he really meant was um, that the Buddha came or was born in this world where uh, there were these sort of larger states coming into being. You know, people had been living in these small 
uh, societies which were basically sort of, you know, subsistence societies. They were dependent on agriculture for their living. And then, of course, at some point, you know, the, the surplus money that they made out of agriculture, that, became to, that came to be invested in commerce and trade. And, of course, new townships came up to accommodate these new commercial activities. And people became more ambitious. There suddenly were new kinds of rulers emerging who wanted larger states, who wanted empires. Right. You know, the first empires in, in Indian history emerge around that time. So suddenly, once again, you have this sort of, you know, sense of people breaking out of their older worlds and people, human beings discovering their, their sense of power, feeling new desires within themselves. And uh, the Buddha observed all this and observed the great enormous violence that had been caused by this, by, you know, people sort of, you know, feeling their desires and wishing to fulfill them even at, you know, great costs of, of violence. And a lot of what he said and a lot of what he spoke about, especially about desire, about, you know, the sense that we have of us being autonomous individuals, you know, with certain desires to fulfill and not being connected to other people in, in really fundamental ways. All of that he wanted to undermine. And I think it was really Nietzsche's sense of how he was in a roughly similar position in the Europe of the 19th century uh, compared to the Buddha in the 6th century BC. That is what really made me, you know, look at the mm. Buddha again and to really read more about the historical context that he was born in and what, what kind of a world was he responding to. Also made me, enable me to see how the Buddha was still relevant. I mean, that is the right. world that we are living in and certainly... Mm -hmm a lot of people in the so-called third world have been living in for a very long time, which has seen these extraordinary, you know, traumatic changes in the last 100, 150 years, this whole experience of colonization, the experience mm -hmm. of modernity, of development and progress, all of these ideas that, mm -hmm. you know, we've had to kind of work our way through in these places. 